You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets podcast. My guest today is Holly George Warren, who's got a new book about Janis Joplin, entitled Janis Joplin, Her Life in Music. Holly, good to have you here. Thanks for having me on your show, Bob. Okay, why a book about Janis Joplin? Why now? You know, Bob, I have been, of course, a fan like everyone of Janis's voice going back to my teen years back in the 70s. Okay, I have to ask, since you brought that up, were you alive and conscious when Janis had her success? Yes. Um, the end of her career, I got to see her you know, on TV from my little hometown of North, in North Carolina on the Dick Cavett Show. And, of course, one of my first albums when I joined the Columbia House Record wow. Club— 12 albums for a penny was Pearl. So I still have my original copy. Wait, wait, my- how, how did you feel after getting the 12 albums for free and then having to pay list price for the ensuing records? I did a lot of babysitting in those days. <laughs> and since I lived in a tiny town with not a lot of access to records, hey, I was cool with it. Okay, this, we're in North Carolina. It's a little town called Ashboro, not to be confused with Asheville, right. which everyone's heard of, the cool hipster town. But Ashboro is right smack dab in the center of the state near NASCAR, Richard Petty territory for any of this. Okay, so NASCAR for those of fans. us who are ignorant city people, what's the closest town we would know of? Greensboro, where the first sit-ins took place. At the right, right. So how far from Greensboro were you? Mm, like 20 miles, 30 okay. miles. And, like yeah. Okay, let's get back to it. Okay, so you bought Pearl. Yeah. And you still have it. Yes. I still have my copy too. And that was, you know, I was a huge record fan already because when I was in third grade, Bob, I discovered on my little clock radio that I could tune in to WABC in New York really? and WLS in Chicago. And this was the golden age. Right. These were of clear channels. Yes. That's why it was ultimately called clear yeah. channels. And in my town, I think that there are one radio station which mostly played country and gospel, which of course, you know, being a rock and roll kid, I hated it went off the air, you know? So I discovered this radio from far away that played this incredible mix of music because AM just was amazing in the mid-60s. 
I became so obsessed, I would not go to sleep at night without listening to my radio. And that's how I learned about records. The transistor under the pillow? Well, you know, I don't remember having it. It was the baby blue pastel, you know, clock radio. Okay, yeah, I remember My parents kind of just said, whatever, you know, they didn't really care. And I started buying 45s like crazy with my babysitting money. And so this was, again, I was third grade, and I started my first little group then. So I became obsessed. Well, I want to go deeper into this. Let's first get into the book. So why Janis Joplin? Why now? Well, because I discovered when I was asked to write liner notes for the Pearl Sessions, which was a two-CD set in which they went and pulled out all these uh, tapes from the vaults at Columbia. and At least they were still there as opposed to universal tapes. Yes, thank God, right? And so you could hear Janice and Paul Rothschild, the producer of Pearl, talk and shop. Janice was leading the conversation, coming up with guitar parts, arrangement ideas. Really? You know, like literally calling the shots. And I knew from work I'd done on the doors and interviewed Bruce Botnick, the great engineer, and other people that Paul Rothschild was a famously iron-fisted producer. And in fact, Joni Mitchell did not like working with him because he was so bossy and and domineering. I actually knew uh, Paul Rothschild a little bit. I wish I could have met him. He seems like a cool guy. He was tough. You know, one has to remember that, of course, he cut all those early Electra records. Yeah. He was a staff producer. But in any event, there are these conversations. And convers- he was the son of an opera singer. Did you know that? If I knew it, I forgot it. Okay. I, I didn't know that. But um, luckily, I got some interviews with him from some uh, journalist friends who did interview him before he passed away. So I suddenly realized that, you know, this persona, this image that Jan has created, which was so indelible and so vivid, wasn't all there was to the story of Janis Joplin. You know, she kind of had this image of being this blues mama. I'm just all about the feel baby, you know, and, you know, that whole technique versus feel idea. And I started thinking, you know what? I think there's more to this woman's music, music, musicianship than meets the eye. So I then started thinking, and wait a minute, she was growing up, Port Arthur, Texas, very conservative, segregated town oil town in the 50s how did she even get access to records by lead belly and 78s by bessie smith it must have taken a lot of effort on her part because i had read some of the other books about her so i really was obsessed with tracing her musical journey and finding out how she got from port arthur texas to queen of the counterculture and then this big star with pearl okay i want to hear that but let's go back to the tapes What did you hear on the tapes? Well, again, with Paul's reputation of being a very... um, Tight-fisted producer. Yeah, exactly. He was listening to Janice. He was like, wow, that's a great idea, you know. And he apparently inspired her to pursue being a producer. In fact, she told John Cook, her late road manager, who, thank goodness, I got to meet and interview, that um, Janice would make a great producer. And Janice was so excited about this idea. She was a studio rat. I mean, she wrote home letters as far back as 1966, the first time she went into the studio in Chicago for the first record Big Brother and the Holding Company did for mainstream records. She wrote home detailing the studio recording process, talking about double-tracking her vocals and explaining what that was. The same kind of thing when they got signed to Columbia and did Cheap Thrills. She was very, very involved in the recording process. Again, letters home describing what mixing was, for example. And, really? Yeah, and Fred Catero, the great engineer. And, right. 
have talked about she was the first one there and the last to leave. She was really, really involved in that whole process. So there was that aspect of her that I think no one really realized, that she was this studious, hardworking musician that was perfecting her craft and wanting to learn every aspect of music, not just that amazing voice of hers. Okay. What was her personality like? Again, she was very multifaceted. You know, we have the Janice image of her, you know, out on stage and just so intense, so impassioned, this music coming from deep within of her expressing all this pain and all this um, torment, you know, through her vocals and really reaching and touching her audiences. I wish I could have seen her live because to this day, I talk to people who saw her in 1966 and they go into this reverie describing it as if it was last week. I mean, her impact was that powerful. But the other side of Janice, which she kept on the down low from her fans, was this very intellectual, studious woman who always had a book with her. She was a total bookworm, loved to read. And she also, you know, had her own fears and her own um, shyness that, again, she kept tamped down through her whole stage bravado and all that kind of thing. Let's go to the end. Do you think her death was inevitable or a pure accident? Pure accident, Bob. I mean, it's it, it's kind of what happened when we tragically lost Tom Petty and Prince. The whole it, It's similar to that whole fentanyl thing because she had had a, an addiction to heroin in 1969, um, but she had gotten clean in 1970. She'd been off it for maybe four or five months. She still was a heavy drinker, and the drinking is much worse on the voice than smack, and she was trying to cut back on the drinking while making Pearl, because she knew that Paul Rothschild would not tolerate her voice not being there, and it can really screw up your voice too much booze. So she happened to run into her dealer from before in L.A. at the Landmark Hotel, where she always stayed, and relapsed. Um, now, what happened that killed her was she, by weird chance, got this really strong heroin that had just been introduced to this country called China White. And it was really pure compared to her usual. And she was by herself, overdosed. And it, it was a tragic accident. Okay, so how did you actually decide to do the book? Well, fortunately, over the years, through different um, things, like there's been a couple of uh, Janice uh, conferences, believe it or not, at the really? Rock, yeah, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. Going back, oh, the, these wannabes or scholars no, on Janice? Yeah, well, not scholars, but the people that were there. So in the 90s, there was one and another one in the aughts, and I got to participate as a panelist talking about Janice's legacy, et cetera. But really, I was a student. I got to meet her brother and sister, who um, we really hit it off. I also got to meet Sam Andrew, who was still alive, her guitarist from Big Brother, Chet Helms, the guy who... Right, Family Donk. Family Donk started the Avalon, who really is the guy that got Janice to San Francisco not once, but twice, in 63 and again in 66. Jerry Ragavoy, right. who was her favorite songwriter that wrote a lot of her great hits, was there. So I was learning more and more about her and just became you know fascinated by okay, her story. Okay, let's get the timeline down. So when did you hear the uh, unreleased tapes? That was in around, I think it was around 2012, 2013, something okay, like that. But you had yeah. already been going to these conferences. Yes, I had just been, you know, a student because I'm 
you know, I'm okay, a geek. Generally I love speak, rock and roll. Okay, are you are you a student of other things? Are you going to other oh, conferences? Yes, I love. Com- I'm a conference junkie. So tell us I a couple panels. of the good ones. Well, it used to be called the EMP conference. Now it's called Mopop in Seattle, which has been going since 2002. That's a great one. I try to go to that every year. So, what What have you learned there? Oh gosh. What have I not learned? Because it goes all through, like every genre going back to, I've learned about artists that I, like Eva Tinge, I think her name is, who was this, do you know her name? I know the name, but I don't know the music. Yeah, just people go down the rabbit hole at these conferences, and each year there's a theme. So it'll be everything from, you know, drag. Last year it was death. So perfect for Janice. How right? many people go? Um, Gosh, you know. It lasts about four days, and there's lots and lots of people. You should go, Bob. You would love it. Um, and it's people, and it's not just academics. It's um, fans, uh, fanzine writers, musicians, the great John Langford, uh, the Mekons, and the, the Waker Brothers has been part of it. Um, they have, they've had Janelle Monet, They had Solomon Burke. They'll have a keynote, a lot of times a musician. Um, the Toonsmith woman, I'm blanking on her name. Or, okay, anyway, so how many of these name. do you go to in a year? Um, see, I go to that one. I go to the Americana Conference in Nashville. Right. I used to go to South by Southwest every year and always do panels for that. And that was really fun. And I, again, I saw amazing, like Harold Bradley and right. Maria Elena Holly. Yeah, it's just gotten too, it's, it's too big now. Um, so Americana is kind of stepping up to the plate now. And so you can actually see like Tanya Tucker, you know, talk or Okay, whatever. so... You're going to these panels, you hear the tapes, you write the liner notes. When do you decide you want to write a book? Well, I was able to talk to the siblings who control Janice's... But you were talking just because you're interested or in the back of your mind, I'm going to do something with this? No, totally not thinking of doing something. But my literary agent, who is a wonderful person who actually has been she worked at rolling stone going back to the late well, 60s she what's her, inspired what's her, she's what's her name her name is sarah lazen and she reps lots of rock writers ben Fogtoris and right. you know uh, robert Criscow and uh, how did you get hooked up with her well because one of my first jobs when i first moved to new york city and besides waiting tables after graduating college with my poli sci english double major was i got a job as a fact checker at rolling stone press well they, you know they wish they still had that of course is the book not the magazine, yeah. but if they'd had a fact oh. checker, would have helped their image. Yeah, definitely. So my first job, Bob, I think it was like five bucks an hour, was fact checking the Rolling Stone Encyclopedia of Rock and Roll. Which, of course, I own. Yes, and I got to meet all these guys, pretty much, they're all guys, who I'd read as a kid reading Rolling Stone, like, you know, Dave Marsh and different people. And then my job was like calling up question mark of question mark and the mysterious and saying, is it true that, you know, you're really from Mars and da-da-da-da-da, you know, whatever Dave had written wait, wait, about him in the encyclopedia. Wait, wait, you know, I have to ask, how'd you get the job? Was it that easy to just, you know, sort of that or do you have to know somebody? Because I am a rock and roll geek, Bob, and I obsessively always read rock and roll books. A friend of mine who I met at American Baby Magazine, where I also had a job, and, you know, of course, I was a long way from having kids or anything like that, but um, she went to work for Rolling Stone and was Sarah Lazen's assistant. Sarah was the director of the book division, and she knew I was this rock and roll geek. They needed a fact checker. I got to go in for the interview, and this wonderful woman, Patty Romanowski, who has written, she went on to write a lot of uh, co-authorships with um, Otis Williams of The Temptations, which now they've made that book into the Broadway musical. She did Dreamgirls and Mary Wilson. Anyway, she was the person hiring, 
And we just started talking about our favorite rock and roll books. And I was just geeking out with her. She's like, you got the job. So Perfect. Your knowledge worked for you. Let's stop there for a second, especially in the Me Too era and uh, a second wave of feminism, shall we say. Who are the unsung women writers in music who need to get more attention? Ellen Sander, number one. Of course. I love her writing. And, wrote um, for the New Yorker. Yeah, and well, that's Ellen Willis. Wrote oh, for right, the, yeah. right. I hear from Ellen Sandra. Isn't yeah. Ellen Willis dead? Yeah, Ellen died a few years ago, and she she was definitely the most intellectual, culturally anthropological anthropological kind of rock critic. Who I mean, she was amazing, and of, of course, reading her on Janice. Her uh, reviews of Janice at the Fillmore right. East and the New Yorker are, are just mind-blowing. But my last book, you know, was on Alex Chilton. She was a big Box Tops fan. Okay, so, I want to get to that, <laughs> so let's go there. Okay, anyway, Ellen so Sander, Ellen, what, she lives in Maine now? Uh, yeah, yeah, she lives, and her book, Trips, right. is amazing, which is a collection. I think she wrote for different magazines, and she went on the road with different bands, um, and she actually reviewed a lot of Janice uh, concerts in New York back in the day, and Woodstock, of course, Um her writing on Woodstock is great. So both of those two, Jan Uhelski, who was at Cream Magazine, um, who was an incredible writer, and I think she's actually working on a doc now about uh, Cream, but I think she was there in the late 60s. Um, Certainly early 70s, that's what yeah, I remember. Yeah, definitely. So those are three right there. And are these people you have regular contact with? Is there a fraternity or shall I say a sorority of women music writers? Well, those women I kind of put on a pedestal, okay. so I'm like a gushy fangirl um, around them. But um, as far as other women go, it's, you know, it there is kind of, I would say for the most part, it is a very cool, supportive group of women. Uh, there's a great book called Women Who Rock, edited by Evelyn McNoddle, who is out here in California. And Evelyn got a lot of different women writers to do essays on different women artists. Ac again, across the genre spectrum. Right. I wrote a piece on Patsy Cline, for example. Then she got all women illustrators to do portraits of the subjects. And that book came out last year. And Evelyn, who teaches also out here, was really um, careful to include a lot of new up-and-coming young women writers as well as us, you know, whole hags have been out there doing it forever. <laughs> so uh, so it's, it's great to get to meet all these different women writers who have this passion for rock and roll. Okay, so you have the agent, and you were telling a story of how this book came to be. Yes, yeah, so uh, my agent, Sarah Lays, and knew Laura Joplin and actually was her agent when she did a book that was basically a memoir with um, referencing lots of letters that Janice wrote home. And so she introduced us, and she kind of paved the way for me to get to know uh you know Laura and Michael Joplin, and then also Jeff Jampol, who you probably know, of course, who represents, represents the estate. Yes, exactly. And so we all hit it off, and they. So, but your agent was basically pitching a book. Well, she was kind of interfacing. I mean, right. this Bob, this took like many years. So that's my question. How many yeah, years did it take? The first conversation, I think, was long before I started working on the Alex Chilton book, which was in 2010. So I would say in like the late aughts, like around 2008 or something. So essentially like. 10 years. Yeah. So it was just conversations. So Could how we long, do this? How no. long after your agent started hooking you up with these people did you actually have a go or get a deal? Probably, you know, like, gosh, I would say... Um, you know, like about six years or something. And this was us conversing back and forth, deciding how could we do this. 
Uh, I gave them my other books. I, my first biography was of Gene Autry, the great singing cowboy, who also his widow, Jackie Autry, had opened up her vaults and files and all of his personal archives to me. Again, I will only do a book like this if I have complete editorial control over what I'm doing. So the estate or the, the heirs have to realize that they, I would love for them to share all this incredible information with me it's in these archives but i can't give them any kind of control over what i write and you end up getting into battles uh no not really i mean i think they trust me and and they know that i am like i'm really really dedicated to try to tell the story as accurately as possible and to try to make it you know all the different facets of someone's so life. So, have you ever written a book and then have the person argue with you or be disenchanted because you got something wrong or you had an opinion they're not comfortable with? Well, not the actual people who. Um, I mean, some of them disagree with the conclusions I draw. For example, Jackie Autry. She still believes that Gene Autry met Will Rogers in a telegraph office, and he said, "Son, you should be doing more than just running this, you know, telegraph for the railroad. You should be a Hollywood star, or whatever." Which I did tons of geeky research and found out that that could not have taken place because of when Will Rogers died, etc. And so I have to depose this incredible myth, like the John Ford, don't you know, don't you know, print the legend, you know, kind of thing that didn't really happen. And she, you know, because I think Gene Autry for himself actually began to believe the story that a press agent created that he was discovered by Will Rogers when in reality. So the press agent created that story. Oh yeah, totally. Okay. So, so she disagreed with that, but we agreed to disagree. Okay. So this book, unlike a lot of music books is with one of the biggest publishers in the nation and Simon and Schuster. Yeah. How did that come together? I just really lucked out. Um, the guy who was the head of, um, I guess, Simon & Schuster is a guy who I worked with a long time ago when I was doing books at Rolling Stone because I ended up going back to Rolling Stone after being a fact checker. I ended up going back there in the early 90s and reigniting the book division again. So I worked with him on some yeah, This person's roll name books. is? Um, his name... Okay, well, you know, we're, 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 you know, having a senior moment. Yes. But in yes, any I'll event. Tell you his name in a okay. But then my editor, Priscilla Payton, who is this wonderful editor at Simon & Schuster, she's the one that I went and met with. She really got it. And she was not a typical music book editor. She does a lot of their political books, a lot of their, you know, big. So you books. make the deal. Simon & Schuster, as they say, Simon & Schuster, Random House, these are like the biggest companies. Is the deal lucrative? Uh, well, let's just put it this way. Uh, Janice was much more lucrative than sadly Gene Autry was. And Well, let me and put it Alex this way. You're writing, writing a book on Janice Joplin. Theoretically, with the advance, could you live a year and do nothing else? Uh, not if you have a son that's in college. Oh, okay, okay. We got my general idea. Yeah. Okay, so the book is a I teach also, and I still write, you know, but, the but few let's magazines say that, let's that are stay left. With, yeah. Let's stay with Janice for a second. Okay. Okay. So, there have been a number of books about Janice. I remember in 74, I vividly remember reading this book in uh, Jackson, Wyoming, in a diner, the Myra Friedman book. Yes, I read that book. Of course. Any good? You know, I totally bought that book, Lock, Stock, and Barrel. It really formed my opinion of Janice, which is part of the reason why I wanted to do my book, because 
Now, in retrospect, looking back, I realized Myra Friedman, who was her publicist, worked for Albert Grossman, her manager, and truly loved Janice. You know, we're old enough now, Bob, that we've lost people and we know the effect that has on you when you lose someone, especially a tragic death like Janice's, you're angry at that person. And now, looking back, I think that um, the portrait Myra painted was very inaccurate. She made Janice seem like this tragic figure who was just just kind of um, in this morass of, you know, sadness and insecurity and just very neurotic and and all that kind of thing. She I think it was very one dimensional portrait of her and it was she was just too close to her subject and I think she was really bitterly upset about her loss. So her anger came out in the way she cast so, Janice. Okay. So you know, that's the one I read. How many books are there biography of Janis Joplin? Um, gosh, well, some of them are no longer in print. But forget forget that they're not in print. I, how know, many people have been? How many have been? I written? would say like about six or something like that. Okay, so this is the, not a subject that has not been covered. Okay. Yes. So the question becomes, uh, why? What do you think you can add, or what is your goal in writing the book? I wanted to show Janice as a musician. I wanted to show her as, you know, the real Janis Joplin who persisted, who overcame so many obstacles to pursue her ambitions to be the greatest, you know, I mean, she told Paul Rothschild when he said, where do you want to be at age 50? And this was when she was, you know, horribly 27. She said, I want to be as good of a blues singer as Bessie Smith was. You know, she... It was all about perfecting her craft, learning more, you know, getting better, you know, continuing to work hard at this. And I think that part of Janice's life and that part of her story has never really been told. Okay, let's go back to Port Arthur because you began there. What were the circumstances of her upbringing? Well, it's an interesting story. She was very beloved by her parents. She was basically an only child until age six when her sister Laura came along. So her parents doted on her. But they were quite different people. You know, they came from, you know, difficult backgrounds themselves. And the mom was, you know, wanted Janice to have the white picket fence, the perfect life, you know, the typical 50s kind of middle class life. And Janice was born in 43. The father was, Janice called him a secret intellectual. His name was Seth Joplin. And he had a mid-level management job at Texaco, then called the Texas Company. You know, the whole town was all oil distilleries and refineries, et cetera. And um, he came home from work, listened to Bach, loved classical music, was a huge reader of philosophy, history. Every Saturday, he took Janice to the library. In fact, she said, you know, in my family, as soon as you could write your name, you got a library card. Instilled in her a love of book, books, but also he was an atheist. Her mom was a evangelical, you know, Christian, you know, very religious woman. Janice started singing soprano in the church choir as a kid, you know, was baptized by immersion, you know, that whole thing. But the father never went to church. He was an atheist. And so the father particularly kind of, instilled in Janice, um, you know, a quest for knowledge to think outside the box. The mother also really um, was a great singer, had been a singer as a teenager in Amarillo, Texas, and started teaching Janice how to sing when she was like three years old, how to play piano. 
So there was some music in the house, and they discovered at Janice that she had this artistic talent. She was a quite good painter, and so they started buying her, you know, paints and easels and everything when she was, you know, quite young and and all that. So they really supported her artistic endeavors. Now, Janice read On the Road by Kerouac when it came out, and that changed her life. Was that 58? Uh, 50, uh uh-oh, all the Kerouac people are going to kill me. I think it was 56. Seven. Okay, so around 50, that period, yes. but at that yeah. point, she's already fourteen or fifteen. Yeah, yeah, she was fourteen. Uh, yeah. or, she was fourteen years old. So yeah, right, so okay. it had to be fifty-seven. So yeah. uh, going back to her growing up, she's in elementary school. She a member of the group? Is she a leader? Is she an outcast? What is she? See, I think Bob. The reason she, you know, famously had this horrible situation by the end of her high school year, where she was completely bullied, ostracized, etc. And I think she took it so to heart because she was, you know, fairly popular. She had friends. She was in the slide rule club. She, you know, made pep rally posters. I mean, she was a typical girl. You can see all this in her scrapbook. She's got her little crinoline, you know, swatches of crinolines and fabrics that her mom's made her all these dresses and everything. And she was very rah-rah, teen spirit kind of girl. But reading Kerouac, meeting these guys who were a year older than she was, who set her on her path to listening to Lead Belly, um, she discovered Odetta through them, Gene Ritchie, the great uh, Appalachian folk singer, and started uh, discovering other ways of thinking and moving away from that traditional Texas football culture, which, you know, football rules in Texas. And she started moving away from that and sneaking across the river and going to Louisiana at night with a carload of boys to hear um, Swamp Rock. How far is Louisiana from Port Arthur? It's, well, it's very close because Port Arthur's right on the Gulf there. So it's right across uh, the river. And so, you know, maybe 45 minutes. And hey, you know, this was... AM radio was still great then too. So this was like they they called it doing the sur- the triangle. They would drive from Port Arthur to Beaumont, Texas, you know, where some great blues came out of Ivory Joe Hunter, etc., to Orange, listening to the radio and picking up some black stations, hearing some R and B. Janice was so obsessed with it, she would go and try to meet the DJs. There was a guy named Steve O, the Night Rider. She would go and say, "Oh, can I get you coffee?" She and her girlfriend would go up and visit the DJs at night. She was just Okay, so she's in high school. She starts living a somewhat bohemian lifestyle, shall we say. Well, as much as could be living at home as a teenager. Well, my question is, it's like, you know, I went and uh, Ray Davies on his Storyteller album has a song, you know, his art chicks, you know, babe. My point is I went to high school. Remember the art people, they were a separate clique. Yeah. So at this point in high school, is she a separate clique or is it still all homogenous? It was pretty homogenous, except for there was these uh, four or five guys that were a grade ahead of her who she started hanging out with. And she was almost like their little mascot or whatever. And also, she started school at a very young age, skipped a grade. So she was about a year and a half younger than most of the kids in her actual grade level. Okay, there's a famous story where I believe she's uh, voted best-looking guy or something. Uh, No, Oh, uh, oh, God. Okay, so tell us. Tell us the story. Okay, 
by the time she, you know, she had so many adventures beginning at age 18. She hitchhiked out to San Francisco from L.A. where she was living in Venice for a little while because uh, she dropped out of college. Anyway, she was back. She goes to Texas, uh, to Austin, Texas, to UT. And that's when she first starts. She's actually enrolled. Yeah. And that's when she first performs for audiences in a little group called the Waller Creek Boys, which was, again, this little bohemian group of guys, a few women, but mostly guys who lived in a place called the ghetto uh, this rundown apartment building in austin and of course they were very different because this was 1962 most of the girls were bouffant hairdos little cinched waist shirt dresses bobby socks janice was wearing like an oversized men's shirt with blue jeans or else a black turtleneck she was often barefooted and she had that amazing voice already, and she was applying it to these records that she had discovered by blues artists. The Waller Creek Boys were mainly doing kind of folky, um, Woody Guthrie-ish kind of stuff, bluegrass. So they started blending all these sounds, and they started performing on campus, and then at this great place, Threadgills, which fortunately still exists, and building this audience. In the meantime, Janice was, as the kids say today, polyamorous. Um, she already was having flings with both men and women. And she didn't try to hide it. And um, she really stuck out. There was actually an article written about her in the Texas, the University of Texas newspaper called She Dares to Be Different. So she was becoming kind of known around the campus. And every year, this fraternity would have a fundraiser, the ugliest man on campus contest. So you would have to pay, you know, 10 bucks to nominate. Someone nominated Janice. And it was just heartbreaking for her. Um, she did not win a linebacker for the football team one, but still just, you know, very, just horrible. Was she insecure about her looks? She was. Yeah. And, um, she, you know, I think she was a beautiful woman. And so it's weird to me to see how people singled out her body parts and her appearance, even when she was getting huge as a star, um, people would talk about her being plain or I think in Vogue magazine, they said her col her complexion was like pizza or something. I mean, it's like sickening the way that uh, the media would cover women. But in those did she days. take this to heart? Was she bothered by all this negative information? When she wasn't drinking or doing drugs, I think she was bothered by it. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet rocking boat. 
So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Okay, so you say she dropped out of school the first time. Yeah, oh and yeah. She, and where was she going the first time? She first went to um, Lamar Tech, which was kind of the school where most of the kids from Like Port a community college. No, it, it was a regular university, but okay. it was where you went to be get a job in the petroleum business. Okay, so she drops out and goes where? And then she did... You know, wherever she went, she found a small little group of, you know, outside the box people. So she found that in Beaumont. Then she ended up dropping out back in Port Arthur and she took business classes. She was quite the good stenographer um, and typist. Uh, her mom demanded that she go to business college in Port Arthur. So she got a little certificate for that. Then her mom sent her out to live in LA with her aunts who lived out in Los Angeles. She Wanted to be a beatnik, as I said. Uh, this was 61. She was 18. So she ends up in Venice, living there for a little while. Goes to San Francisco, hitchhiking by herself, checking out the North Beach scene, whatever. Runs out of money, takes a bus back to Port Arthur. And then she ends up discovering the scene in Austin. So that's when she went to college in Austin How in long 62. did she last in Austin? She went there for the summer session and the fall session. Okay, so how does she end up back on the West Coast? Well, that horrible incident occurred with her poster of her nominated for Ugliest Men on Campus. And she had met Chet Helms, who was a former UT student who had been traveling around doing the Kerouac thing and had been living out in San Francisco. He heard her sing, and he's like... You're going to knock their socks off in San Francisco because North Beach had a cafe scene, coffee house scene where people were doing folk music, some a little bit of blues. So in 63, a week after her 20th birthday, she and Chet hitchhiked from Austin to San Francisco. Okay, just to be clear. Was Chet living in San Francisco previously, or did he go out with Janice? He had been kind of living there for a little while. He'd been traveling around, you know, doing the whole on the road okay. thing. Yeah. Did, was there a romantic uh, relationship there? No, they were just platonic, you know, good friends. Okay, um, so she He moved, really believed in her, Okay, though, so they moved scene. to San Francisco. They're living where? Yeah, well, she did not stick around. She did not want to be managed. She wanted to be an independent agent. They basically stayed for a few nights at David Freiburg's place, right. crashed on his floor. Quicksilver and ultimately Jefferson right, Starship. Right. And uh, he uh, he and Chet took her down to Coffee and Confusion, a coffee house in North Beach, where she did an open mic night. And of course, that voice just knocked people, knocked their socks off, just like Chet said. So she pretty much started getting little gigs. 
playing at the coffee house circle she, circuit. She went out to um, like San Jose. She met Yorma Kalkinen at like a open mic night. And they both loved the blues. I mean, most of these people were doing kind of more the folk stuff, okay. but they loved blues. So she is singing. Is she making a living singing? No. I mean, so, you know, five bucks a night. Okay, so what's she doing for money? She's scraping by. She's sleeping in, on people's floors. I mean, she has no infrastructure, no support. Um, it's really Is she a hard. stenographer? She has these skills? Not really, no. Okay, so... Is she just in the moment, or does she have a dream of making it at that point? She has a dream of making it. That's the thing. Even though she was living like a down-and-out beatnik you know, on the streets, she still had this dream of making it. And people immediately recognized her talent. And she was nothing like the Janice Joplin we picture today. Uh, you know, the whole San Francisco freak rock and then her later stuff. She was doing, uh, she'd already started writing songs. She was doing her own stuff. She was sometimes accompanying herself with auto harp. She really wanted to learn to play guitar so she could learn how to back herself. So she started learning guitar, got a, you know, pawn shop guitar and stuff. And, um, she was making some noise. People were interested in her, but she was a very, you know, she had, was living a very unsettled existence. Okay. Is Big Brother her first band, or did she go through a few iterations with other people? Well, she had had the Waller Creek Boys. Uh, I mean, in Los Angeles. But she had never had Electric. Okay. So basically, this whole blues singer thing lasted almost three years. She actually ended up coming to New York City the summer of 64 and trying to make it there and ended up making most of her money as a pool shark. She was a great pool player. <laughs> so she was like beating all these guys at pool, and that's pretty much how she got back. Suddenly, she went back to San Francisco, tried to make it again, but horribly, she'd picked up a really nasty drug habit. She got addicted to methamphetamine, which was very prevalent in San Francisco and New York at that period. And she ended up getting down to 88 pounds, I mean, really facing death. Her friends put her on a Greyhound back to Port Arthur, 1965. She was back in Texas for a year cleaned up her act, went back to school, back to Lamar as a commuter this time. But now she was trying to do the you know campus co-ed thing. But the music was gnawing at her. She really, she could not stop doing music. She was writing songs. She wrote Turtle Blues then, which was on Cheap Thrills. She started doing little gigs again um, in Houston where Towns Van Zant was performing. Guy Clark was hanging out then. So how did she get back to San Francisco? She ended up getting gigs in Austin because of, you know, doing her shows again. And Chet Helms was now fu fully entrenched in the, so, the, you know, cool scene, the counterculture happening in San Francisco with a family dog, the Avalon Ballroom. He was managing Big Brother and the Holding Company. They decided they wanted a chick singer doing those little air quotes. Yes. And so he's like, I know the perfect girl. Now, Peter Albin, the bass player, the founder of the band who was doing most of the vocals, had actually seen Janice back in her blues singing folky days, um, you know, on the on that scene. So he remembered she had a great voice. So they sent an emissary, a mutual friend from San Francisco who drove to Austin and absconded with Janice. And she, you know, didn't tell her parents, you know, they were horrified and just petrified that she was going to end up in a bad situation again, like she had before with the speed. Okay, so how long did she play with Big Brother before they make the mainstream deal? She was very briefly. She got there in June of 66. They immediately bonded. Um, she was just one of the guys in the in the beginning. You know, she only sang maybe three or four songs a set as the lead singer. Everybody contributed material. Everybody took turns singing lead, except for Dave, the drummer. And um, 
Interestingly enough, Paul Rothschild came into the picture. He was working for Jack Holzman at Electra, and they had the idea of putting together a supergroup and putting together, they'd heard Janice, you know, and again, no one knew her, and she was just part of Big Brother. They'd heard her vocals, and it was going to be Taj Mahal, the great guitarist, Stefan Grossman, Janice. Um, they wanted to put them together, record an album for Electra, etc. So Janice almost quit Big Brother in like the end of the summer, you know, like July, August of 66 to do join this venture because it promised more success than Big Brother because they were still pretty crazy, cacophonous, you know, freak rock. Okay, so they got the deal with Mainstream. The great song Down On Me is there. Yes. But that's in an era, certainly when being on an independent label, you're a second-class citizen. Well, and plus the label just didn't get this. They, they wanted to try to cash in on the San Francisco sound, and Bob Shad, who ran the label, had great ears. He had worked with Carmen McRae. He was mainly a jazz producer. He'd been in the business for a long time, but he wanted to get on what the kids are doing. So they were actually marooned in Chicago, Big Brother and the Holding Company. They had a month-long residency at this club, Mother Blues, which was a disaster. People were like, what? You know, they were like, what are these freaky people doing? You know, they're horrible. And they were having to play three sets a night, no money, barely getting by. So Bob Shad offers them this deal which was a really bad deal. Now, Chet Helms was no longer their manager. They fired him because they thought he was too busy with the Avalon and given, not giving them any attention. So they had no manager who, to... Who was the man oh, so they did it without a manager? Yes. And did it was, without a lawyer? Uh, the lawyer was provided by Bob Shad, by Mainstream. So okay. it was a horrible deal. And also, worst of all, was that you know the engineer, they did their first recordings right there in Chicago, they didn't even get an advance. They thought they would get an advance so they'd have the money to get back to San Francisco. They couldn't get home. They were stuck there. Uh, how long after that did they play the Monterey Pop Festival? That was uh, in June of 67. This is like uh, August, September of 66. So how does the band stay together for nine months? Well, they finally got back. They did one at, remember, drive-away cars? Of course. Okay, so they got a drive-away car, got back. The good thing about that bad situation was they were having to try to win over these people that were appalled by their music, and that really pushed Janice to develop this incredible stage presence, even more than she was already doing with the loving audiences that they had at the at the Avalon. So she was really pushing herself. They were really expanding their repertoire. They had to do three sets a night. So it really helped her, you know, hone her skills. She was also a really good percussionist. Uh, Dave Getz, the drummer, told me she really took, she was playing that um, all kinds of percussion instruments, a gira and all that. So she was really improving her chops. So by the time they got back to San Francisco, things were really moving along with the whole counterculture. Um, they were, you know, one of the first music fanzines was, you know, writing about them. Jerry Garcia was telling people what a great singer Janice but I, was. But, you know, if it, I was not aware of the mainstream album until after Cheap Thrills was released. Well, that's because it was rushed out after they were at Monterey Pop. Um, so it didn't even come out until well, after? Yeah, they put out singles because, you know, Bob, the paradigm was still the right. whole AM radio singles driven market. So they released a, a two singles um, on mainstream, which you know, rare collectibles, if you can find them. And so, again, Janice wasn't even featured on the first single, hardly. Down on Me fight was the second single, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, but the sad. album didn't come out until after Monterey Pop. Yeah. So, so they're at Monterey Pop. The legend is that Clive Davis was there and became enamored and signed them. Is that the truth? Well, what happened was no one had really heard of Janice 
a few people had heard of Big Brother, but they were mainly known in the Bay Area, okay? So they had a Saturday early afternoon slot on the How bill. did they even get the gig? Because, um, you know, Adler, Lou Adler and John Phillips really wanted to have kind of credibility that this was a cool festival. So they wanted the cool San Francisco bands who were very suspicious of these slick L.A. guys and the slick music because it was, you know, the counterculture thing. And so... That's how they came kind of in a package with like Grateful Dead and, you know, some other bands from the Bay Area, Jefferson Airplane. So, Big Brother. so they have an early Saturday mo- yeah. afternoon yeah, slot. Yeah, yeah, because they were the least known, you know, the dead. Like early, like 1 p.m.? Yeah, something like that. Okay. And so the deal was that um, ABC TV had given the producers of Monterey Pop a deal to do a made for TV movie, and they had brilliantly hired D.A. Pennebaker, the late great uh, documentarian who, you know, worked with Dylan, etc. So he was filming this. Now, the San Francisco people, being suspicious of their ulterior motives, refused to sign the release. So their sets could not be filmed. Well, Janice and Big Brother went out and just killed I mean, people are, I mean, to use the Brit term, gobsmacked. But by the same token, the uh, the movie doesn't come out until a year after Woodstock. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, D.A. Pennebaker was like, I don't, we've got to film this woman. They have, we've got to film, you know, the famous shot of Mama Cass's face, right. you know. That was the only the thing. That was the only thing they were able to film. They couldn't film the band. So, the producer- Wait, wait, just to be clear. So, Big Brother said no to the filming. Correct, okay. as did the dead and others. Okay, so they had a manager at this point who had been a merry prankster with Ken Kesey. The manager was who? Julius Carpin. Okay. Okay, and so he was very like, forget it, you know, they're going to rip us off. Don't, you can't do it. So this huge fight happens because the producers say to Janice and Big Brother, we will give you another time slot. You'll be the under, only band to play twice if you let us film you for the movie. And so, of course, Janice, yes, 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 we got to do it. We got to do it. Albert Grossman is there because um, some of his clients, Mike Bloomfield and Paul Butterfield, were on the bill. He was there. I mean, everybody was floored. Clive Davis in the audience, everybody was blown away by what they saw that Saturday afternoon. Well, just to be clear, that's the first performance. The first one. And so they were finally convinced to play again on Sunday evening, like around dusk. Who did you know who they followed and who they were um, before? I do know, but it's kind it's of in okay. the cobwebs right now. Okay, okay. But but they, they go on. Yeah, they go on and again they killed. And, and you know, I think this time they only did like a three song set or something. Right. They ended with the amazing version of Ball and Chain right. that Janice and Janice and the band had gone and seen Big Mama Thornton, who by the way, Janice had discovered as a teenager you know, when right. when Big Mama recorded for Houston labels and did the original Hound Dog, right. which Janice loved. So they saw her do Ball and Chain, went backstage, met her, learned the song, and, you know, hence we have the Okay, ball so chain. they kill, they're in yeah. them, they're filmed. Yeah. How do their business arrangements change? Well, what happened was so many music writers were there. Every music writer in the country was there. Everybody went nuts over Janice. She was in the headlines, and it suddenly elevated you know, her stature, and suddenly, I mean, it really affected the democratic dynamic of the band, but in the meantime, different labels started coming to call. They were locked into this horrible deal 
with mainstream. Do you know what that deal was? How many years? It, how many like records? Like a five-year contract, you know, really right. bad, like no, you know, teeny little percentage right. of royalties. They hadn't seen any money from the singles. Mainstream will not release them from the contract. So right. they're getting despairing about that. Um, so eventually what happens is they end up having a falling out with their, you know, hippie manager because he, again, was very suspicious of business practices anyway. They end up signing with Albert Grossman. How much did Albert Grossman want them? He wanted Janice. Okay. You know, he loved Janice. He was blown away by her voice. And they really had a meeting of the minds, too. I mean, he became like a father figure to her. You know, so um, they signed with Albert how long after the pop festival? Um, see, the pop festival was in June, so I think around November or something like that. They ended up firing Julius okay. and then getting him, and then he started the negotiation, negotiations with Clive Davis, newly president of Columbia, who was able to come up with a huge amount of money to buy them out of their contract. For was mainstream. there any other label involved or was it always Columbia? Well, there were some others that were interested, but and even initially the first offer from Columbia wasn't huge, but this was again, you know, 1967 and they, I think it was like $250,000 to buy out the contract, which in 1967 was a ton of money. And so they ended up, um, at this point, the mainstream record had come out, and you know, Big Brother refused to even promote the record. They told everybody it was terrible. You know, it was a cash in kind of deal. And actually, it's, I like, I enjoyed listening to that okay, record. Okay, the legend you. is when the deal is signed, Janice says that she and Clive should have sex to cement the deal. Is that <laughs> apocryphal or true? That's Clive's story. Uh, I would not doubt it, though. Um, I think Albert Grossman actually mentioned something about it as well. So Janice loved to, uh, you know, she loved to share uh, experiences with people. So she was not averse to sealing deals with, with flesh. Okay, let's go talk about Cheap Thrills. Um, ultimately, it was a live album cut in a studio. The version that we hear on the record. Well, not really, well, Bob. That's, that's, that's a misconception. Well, no, okay, that's, yeah. what I wanna, that's exactly yeah. where I'm going. Yeah. How much was the album worked on before we got the version that came out? A ton. And again, they this they were working with John Simon, who knew Grossman. Grossman who ultimately did the band. Yeah, he had already done the band album, which got them signed. Um, he he had produced their demos. He uh, produced Leonard Cohen. You know, he was an amazing producer, but he and Big Brother and the Holding Company were on the opposite end of the spectrum as far as aesthetics go. He was terrible to them in the studio. He undermined their confidence. He, you know, I know you love his book and everything, but he really browbeated them. Is that a word? Browbeated? Anyway. I don't think so, but we'll roll with it. Okay. He, I think it's just browbeat, but he, keep going. Yeah. Okay. So they, you know, they were losing confidence in their own ability. They were a great live band and they really communicated with their audiences, you know, at the Avalon Ballroom and the Fillmore, et cetera. But in the studio and its sterile environment, it was not working and they were messing up. And now Janice, on the other hand, she killed in the studio. She was a pro. Things wouldn't get to her. She would just keep going and going and going. And in fact, I find it kind of funny. John criticized, John Simon criticized her for being inauthentic because she could redo a vocal part perfectly note to note exactly the way she had just done it before. Okay, this, what we hear on the released LP, was it one long session or did they start? It was many, 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 many sessions. All in New York? No, no, no. Um, they ended up moving out, doing them out here in Los Angeles. Um, 
prime at the Columbia. St- at, these were back in the days where, where we recorded in the had, label studio. Yeah, and you had to use the engineers, the union engineers, and all that kind of stuff. So they only, I think, ended up cutting two songs in the New York, and some of those sessions you can see because Pennebaker wanted to make a documentary about Janice so he filmed um, some of the sessions so you can see some of that footage and see what the dynamic was like in the studio it was very fraught but Janice loved being in the studio and just ate it up took to it so that most of it was recorded out in LA and most of those tracks are completely um, spliced you know this is the day of cutting tape spliced together Many, many different takes, a vocal part here, instrumental part there, blah, blah, blah. So whose decision was to make it a faux live album? Um, well, I think originally, the, the well, I don't think, I know, originally they wanted to make a live album. So they first tried to record at the Grandy Ballroom in Detroit, which was kind of the Detroit version of the Avalon. And they were on, sadly, a double bill with the Hometown Heroes, MC5, who were freaking killer life okay and who were up to prove that they were better than anybody right so just nominated for the rock and roll hall of fame yeah for about the fifth time i think so maybe this is the charm fifth time's the charm but anyway um so they were kind of not on their game big brother and the holding company and again janice always pulled it off so she sounded great but there were a lot of flubs with the band and they were under all this pressure. So they were, came back to New York. They sat down in Grossman's office. He played, they had a remote recording right. thing there. And they were like, listen to all these mistakes. This is terrible. And you, Sam Andrew, you should play bass and somebody else should play, you know, just criticize. I mean, really, their poor confidence this was, was just Albert Grossman shredded. in this yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And but the same thing with Columbia. Okay, so but, but, so that was point, like mixed, that was, whole idea. At what point was it decided the studio recordings would have elements added so that it would appear live? I think because that was really the aesthetic of Big Brother and the Holding Company was that live band, you know. Okay, so the album comes out. is an immediate smash. Did they anticipate that? Yeah, it shipped gold. Well, I think because there had been a lot of hype about Janice and um, about the band and they had come out to, for the, they didn't play in the, on the East Coast until they came out in February of 68 for their very first ever shows. They played at colleges like Wesleyan University and RISD and places like that, mostly a lot of colleges, and started getting a following, and the press just went nuts, you know. So what's the process of firing the band? It was very painful. And again, Janis Joplin was nothing but fearless. She was driven driven to be the musician to move keep moving forward and evolving as a musician she could not stay stuck in a rut and she felt like the band wasn't moving okay but the way the legend goes is those surrounding her never mind the press i remember the press at the time said the band was not as good as she was and they were untogether was it she who wanted to fire the band or was it everybody around her said convinced her they gotta go I think it was a combination, uh, Bob. I'm sure Grossman, um, you know, he was always um, criticizing the band. And, you know, Clive Davis told me that he tried to stay out of that. And, in fact, early on, he, Clive wanted it to be Janis Joplin with Big Brother and the Holding Company on Cheap Thrills. She said, absolutely not. This is a band. Same thing, Bill Graham. They were the first um, band. They played the first night of the Fillmore East in New York. He wanted the marquee. Janis Joplin with Big Brother. Absolutely not. I mean, she wanted it to stay this communal thing. Okay, so they uh, 
Fire, she fires the band. She ends well, she up- didn't fire them. She just said she was leaving the band. She was going to go. And, and I mean, she loved those guys. I mean, Bob, after all the horrible things that happened to her, you know, that hurt her own confidence and helped her, you know, made her be insecure, they gave her so much confidence. They were her first real family, this tribe. I mean, they lived together in Lagunitas. They, you know, they squabbled like siblings, but there was love among them. And she loved them, but she knew that they were doing their thing and she wanted to do other things. Okay. She wanted a horn. She was okay. in love with Otis Redding. She okay. wanted so to play with Otis she Redding. She said band. she was going to leave. Yeah. Did she talk to them again? Oh, yeah. They toured. She, this was at the beginning. This was, she told them right before they did a show with the staple singers at Fillmore East that she was going to do this huge tour. I mean, they had a very booked tour to promote the album. She was going to do the tour. And then um, in December, she would be leaving. This all came down. They played the Newport Folk Festival, which people loved. Grossman, yet again, ugh. The rhythm section was really off, you know, and told them that right in front of, you know, Rick Danko and Levon Helmers. You know, they were just mortified. Okay, so. So it was right after that when she quit. But she said, I'm going to do the rest of the did, tour. She so the she of, left so, until in December of 68. Okay, so yeah. now we ultimately get the album, uh, I Got Them Old Cosmic Blues Again Mama, okay, which had the great single Try, had incredible players, but externally Look like it really wasn't a success, you know? Well, you know what, Bob? I, you know, I grew up, you know, reading all the rock critics. So I never even gave that record the time of day. I went back to it, you know, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, whatever. And it's a freaking great record. Well, but my different question is, inside the camp, Janice, Clive, Albert, did they think it was success or did they want something better? What happened was there was a huge backlash against Janice because she dared to leave the boy band behind and do her own thing. She was accused of selling out, going showbiz. Paul Nelson famously wrote this scathing article, this portrait in Rolling Stone, painting her as this neurotic mess. And its title was Janice Joplin, the next Judy Garland. No, ro- I'm sorry, uh, Rock's Judy Garland, the Judy Garland of Rock. That was the exact thing. The Judy Garland of Rock. Judy, of course, died a few months okay, after so that. Then- so she was really castigated by former champions. Even the great Ralph Gleason, who had loved her, said, she should drop this band and go go crawling back to Big Brother if they'll have her. You know, stuff like that. Okay, was- so then how is it decided that she's going to work with Paul Rothschild? Well, what happened was she had been working nonstop. She immediately segued from being one of the guys in Big Brother to being the band leader of what was later called Cosmic Blues on the road nonstop. And really, with in 69, that Cosmic Blues experience really took her to the top as far as that's when she did Ed Sullivan. That's when she toured Europe for the first and only time. She sold out Royal Albert Hall, got the audience out of their seats. She did Woodstock. I mean, she did all this big, big festivals working nonstop so she was worn out okay so she finally um you know at the end of 69 they did their last show a big show at madison square garden and she you know let the band go except for two players the guitarist and the bass player and then she took a break and went to brazil and got off heroin um and started writing new songs started kind of just getting re-energized she bought a house in larkspur in marin county 
and started, you know, meeting with some new players to put together a new band. This was much more of an organic kind of band. Uh, some of the guys had played with the Hawks. Uh, Albert knew some of them. A lot of them were Canadians. Um, so they started kind of rehearsing together in her garage. And they formed a really great uh, kind of harmonious relationship where she was the band leader, but she was also still like had this camaraderie. And that hadn't really happened with the Cosmic Blues. Okay, band. so how did she end up working with Paul Ross? She had kind of burned her bridges with some people who thought she was a junkie, and Paul was one of those people. Uh, she was able to contact him. She had been hanging out with him, you know, in the LA days because he was working with the Doors, etc. Bobby Newworth, Paul, John Cook, her road manager was a dear friend of of Paul's. So he decided to give her a chance. He was, you know, the son of an opera singer. He knew great singers, wait, and wait, he so saw her. She wanted to use him. Yes. Okay, so they for cut her the, last record. So yeah. they cut the record, and he wasn't sure. But when he saw her performing again, he's like, "This girl has got okay. the goods." So, so I she do cuts this. the record. Yeah. And the story is that these are all guide vocals, rough vocals. Is that true on Pearl? For the most part, yes. But she was Janis Joplin. Okay, you know? how does she? Janis end up Joplin rough, you know, rough takes are like you right. know, people how, aspire how she, to sing. How that did well. she end up cutting Mercedes Benz? This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
There's different stories. I like the one that Bobby Womack tells. So I'm going to go with that one in that she had already done that song. Um, when they had, she had pulled that out and done it live in Port Chester at the Capitol Theater. She had written it in a bar before going on stage that night with Rip Torn, Geraldine Page, and Bob Newworth. So you believe on. that's true? Oh, yeah, that's definitely true. And Bob was writing down, you know, they were just kind of riffing in this bar, right? It's great. So she goes out and does it. The band jumps in and tries to play along. So anyway, it was just kind of a fun thing to do, inspired by Michael McClure thing, etc. So she was working in the studio. Bobby Newworth came in. I mean, sorry, Bob Bobby Womack came in to pitch his songs for the record. And so he ended up playing guitar on his track. And then they started drinking, partying. He's going to give her a ride in his Mercedes. So they're in his Mercedes. She starts, according to Bobby Womack, she starts singing Mercedes Benz. And she's like, oh, man, you know, turn around, take me back, take me back. I want to go back to the studio. I want to go back to the studio. He goes back and only Paul Rothschild's there, the Sunset Sound. And um, he's like, man, I want, she's like, I want to put this down. Let's do this. So she just kind of does it as a lark. Apparently, when she died, you know, before the album was completed and they were putting together all the sessions and different tracks and everything, he remembered that song that she had just done for fun. And she had at some point called um, out and spoken to Michael McClure to get his permission to do right. it. And so anyway, he pulled that and put it on the end of the album. And you can just hear her do her little cackle at the end. Right. And it's, I mean, when I think about those guys gathered in the studio to hear that, you know, to hear that album, it must have been just Okay, how, so does, how does she end up cutting me and Bobby McGee? Oh, gosh. Well, Bobby Newworth, I'm telling you, the Zelig of cool. Famously, we know him from being Dylan's buddy and et cetera. He was kind of her aide de camp on the road with her. He worked for Grossman, et cetera. He actually heard that song being played in Grossman's office in New York. And of course, no one had heard of Chris Christopherson. And it was being played by Gordon Lightfoot, who had heard the song, heard a demo. And so he's like, man, that's a great song. Teach me that song. So Bobby North learns the song in Albert's office from Gordon Lightfoot. Goes over, sees Janice at the Chelsea Hotel. Man, you got to hear this song. Plays her the song. She goes nuts over it. He teaches her the song. And so she's, this is in 69. So she's still got the Cosmic Blues Band. She pulls it out and plays it for the first time live in Nashville, a show in December, I think it was, of 69, you know, and said, oh, this is from a guy, a hometown guy. You guys are going to you know, hear about him, Chris Christopherson. I haven't met him yet, but this is a great song kind of thing. So then fast forward to 1970. Bobby Newworth finally meets Chris Christopherson when he has some gigs in the village. They go on this crazy, as he called it, great tequila, bo great tequila boogie. This wild tear, fly out to California to the ghost. Let's go see Janice, you know. So that's when she meets Chris Christopherson. They are just like mm, two Texans brought together by song and attraction and all that stuff. He teaches her Sunday morning coming down, which she there's a bootleg of her doing that in Austin. She loved his music, loved his writing, and I just wish she had lived to do. I can't you imagine her doing "Help Me Make It Through the Night," the Sammy right. Smith hit, you know? Okay, I mean, so we've covered. Uh, I mean, there's so much. People can read the book for more details. But getting to the author behind the book, you've written like 16 books. What's your favorite book of the of other course, than yeah, other than of Janice. course the one I just did? Okay, it's other always, than Janice, it's always the that newest out. one. Um, well, you know, I love both my Gene Autry and my Alex Chilton biographies, because to me, right, I, I grew up loving to read biographies. They're still my favorite kind of book to read. And to be able to pull off those books, it's really, really hard to write biographies. But then 
putting so much of my heart and soul into it, I really feel like my subject becomes part of my life. So I still am, you know, with the Ken Burns doc series, all the Gene Autry stuff, I was like, yes, yes. You know, I love it when they're getting their recognition. Okay. So both, Alex, I would say both my Gene Autry and my okay. Alex Chilton. The Alex Chilton book. Why did Alex Chilton sound so different vocally in the box tops in Big Star? Well, because he was, you know, 16 years old, uh, you know, when he was in the box tops. And he was coached by Dan Penn to do the letter in that way. He'd stayed out all night uh, having a little frolicking fun with his girlfriend in a graveyard, drinking, smoking cigarettes. So he's had that rasp naturally. And if you even see him on some live things from that period, he, you know, he liked to drink and smoke in those days. So he had that kind of teenage rasp. But you know, people didn't know what he looked like. They thought he was like a 40-year-old black man, you know, singing. And that's why they got to be on a tour. With so if, he'd, if we'd had national health care, would Alex Chilton still be alive today? No, I, you know, sadly, that didn't really have anything to do with it. Um, he was very, actually pretty health conscious, but like most of us, he was afraid of getting a bad diagnosis. His family had a history of heart problems his father had a heart attack at a young age his sister did his brother okay, he had a fear yeah but also could he have afforded it i think he could have because he was in new orleans and his, you know i yes i mean at the end of his life he was did he have any money oh yeah yeah because of that 70s show baby you know he made a lot of money from that show using one of his big star songs as the theme song for that show and thanks to, you know, first three placements and then Counting Crows. I mean, he was getting a lot of props from these young artists. So he was doing quite well. He actually bought this really gorgeous, expensive piano. He had a little house in New Orleans in Treme. And he he liked to live on the down low, but he liked, you know, a nice piano. But he, he could have afforded, you know, health care. But he did not want to find out that he had a heart problem. And uh, that killed him. Okay, so... What's your next book? How to Sleep. <laughs> That's obviously a joke. <laughs> Do you have any idea what your next book is? I do, but you know, I don't want to jinx it. Oh, that's and say, okay. You know, okay. So you're I'm someone. Still in you're land. someone. Okay, couple of questions here. Lightning round. Albert Grossman, uh -oh. crook or honest? He was a sharp businessman and an incredible esteet. So, did he do right by Janice? Yes, he did right by Janice. Yeah. Okay. You've met a lot of your heroes, I presume. Who lived up to the rep? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, I did get to meet Gene Autry when he was 89 years old, and that's kind of what led me to doing that book. So that was an amazing experience. Of course, I did know Alex long before I, I was in a little combo that he actually produced called Clambake, so that's how I got to know him. Um, as far as most of my heroes... You know, you, you learn not to um, expect too much. Johnny Cash, incredible, um, and June Carter Cash. Getting to interview him and hitting it off by talking about the Carter family and cowboy stuff. He was a big Gene Autry fan. He ended up inviting me over to their house, and I, you know, so that was totally lived up to my heroes. Um, Patti Smith, you know, she was one of the reasons I moved to New York because she played at UNC Chapel Hill when I was in college, and I've never seen a woman like – she was like my, you know, Janice, I guess, as far as seeing a transformative, you know, woman on stage and like, wow, what is that, you know? So I would say she – you know, I got to hang out with her and interview her. So she, And then, of course, I love Just Kids. So, so I'd okay. say she, you know. Okay, so then you've written books about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame – 
what female performers are not in who should be in? Oh, well, I'd love to see the Shangri-Las in there. Of course, one of their songs in there. Chaka Khan, definitely. I mean, year after year, she's on the ballot. She's on the ballot this year with Rufus. So, you know, and that was kind of like Patti Smith. First, it was the Patti Smith group. Then it was just Patti Smith, and she got in. So, one year, it's Chaka Khan. One's with Rufus. So, I'm hoping she really, really deserves to be in. She's amazing. There's some more pioneers that should be in. Um, Big Mama Thornton should be in. It was so cool to get uh, Nina Simone in, Wanda, Wanda Jackson, some other maybe more outlier in the public consciousness women. It would be great to get in some of the other pioneers. I think Patsy Klein should be in there. What about Pat Benatar is nominated? I think that's great. You know, I mean, she's an amazing role model in that she had all those hits toured with her husband, the guitarist, and they're still together after all these years. She should be in for that reason alone, <laughs> I think. Okay, know. so what do you think about today's music? I love, you know, I am a music Okay, maniac, let's be very so. clear. Spotify Top 50, which is mostly hip-hop and pop. Oh, okay. What's your verdict on that? Well, you know, there's some hip-hop I like. I, of course, you know, I gotten into post malone i've gotten to lil nas x and and i have to be honest i mainly got into them because they're cool nudie suits and the western thing you know because i'm really into nudie suits i wrote a book called how the west was worn i love nudie and the whole rhinestone cowboy look um but you know i'm still kind of a roots rock kind of gal i love the avid brothers i love all those americana bands i love you know um oh my god what's the new guy Oh, um, Sturgill Simpson. Oh, yeah, I love Sturgill Simpson, and I love the other guy, Jason Isbell. Jason Isbell and his um, partner, who's amazing. I right. love her record, which is really outside the box. Um, I love uh, Orville Peck. Have you seen him yet? No, I oh my god, you got to check him out. He's got a kind of Roy Orbison amazing voice. He wears the weird fringed mask. I saw him at the Americana conference a few weeks ago. He was awesome. Okay, anybody you haven't seen who you want to see. Oh, gosh, yeah, there's... Who's still alive. Oh, that's still alive. Um, let's see. Most of the ones that I wanted to see have sadly passed on. Um, that's a good question. Okay. <laughs> of concerts you've been to. Oh. Top three. Oh, my gosh. Bob, I hate picking top things. It doesn't matter. Just give me the ones that come to mind. Oh, okay. Well, again, I would say seeing Patti Smith in Chapel Hill in 1977, I think it was, changed my life. Okay. Uh, seeing The Clash in New York City at the Palladium when I first moved there in 19, I think that was 79 or 80, changed my life. Seeing the Jackson 5, that was my first ever concert at the Greensboro Coliseum. And Michael and I were close in age. That was an amazing show to see the Jackson five. And somehow I ended up like sixth row or something. I was in like junior high school. I don't know how that happened. So but. is there a woman rock writer sorority? Do you, are you a loner or a lone gun person or are no. you part of a group? I'm a people person. That's why I hate writing. <laughs> I like, I love the research. I love being out interviewing. I love hobnobbing with other writers, with artists. I love, meeting people and talking to people you've got the perfect job you know well, I, I but you're a great writer too, okay so. thank you so a couple of people unsung that people should be aware of a couple of artists that are unsung oh gosh all right let me think oh boy that's let's see who 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 it's okay. not a test it doesn't have to be the coolest well, act. you know holly williams um hank williams granddaughter hank jr's daughter right who was featured also in the ken burns thing as one of the talking heads she's an amazing artist um i look forward to hearing her next record she's not really that very well known 
Um, oh, there's a great uh, band from the Woodstock area where I live called The Mammals, which is um, Ruthie Unger and Mike Marinda's band. They are amazing. She's an incredible singer. And they go out, they do a lot of the kind of uh, Americana circuit festivals and things okay, like that. Okay, so... You live in Woodstock. Yeah, well, I live in Phoenicia, which is near Woodstock, right. right outside of Woodstock. And so how, how long have you been living there? I moved up there in the end of 2001. I had a little cabin in the woods up there. I lived on St. Mark's Place in the East Village for 23 years, so I started needing some trees. Well, we were talking, uh, you know, before the podcast began that you have a son at Wesleyan. Yes. Okay. He's a senior in the film program. A senior in the film program. So uh, where is his father? His father is probably, his. he's actually, as we speak, in the recording studio in Rosendale, New York, right now, working on a new recording. He so actually, is he someone we know? His name is Robert Burke Warren, and he. I met him when he was in the Flesh Tones, and I was in an all-girl punk rock polka band at the time called Dust for Alliance back in the 80s. So we were on some double bills, and that's how we met, and we've been together ever since. And So you're still together? Yeah, we're and still now, together. That's why Pat's and Neil are my idols. Right. We've been married 30 years. Okay. So your first marriage? Yes, my his, one and only. His one and only? Yep. And he lived in England for a year. He played Buddy Holly on the West End, that musical that ran over there for a long time. How'd you meet him? Um, my husband and I met when we did a gig together out in East Hampton, Labor Day weekend of 1987, and with the Flesh Tones and Dust for Lines. So that's how we met. Was it an instant romance? Well, you know, he's from Atlanta. I'm from North Carolina. So we had that in common. And our first date was actually in New York City going to Sylvia's, the soul food restaurant, and to the Cloisters. And is your son at Wesleyan your only uh, child? Well, I have another child named Art. Who, which takes up a lot of our time and money. So, but I, was, I don't have any children. He's I'm our, not, he's I'm our not only, judging you. Jack is our only, his name is Jack Warren. He's going to be a great filmmaker someday. And he is our only human son. Yes. He's our only human child. <laughs> I'm stunned you're still together. That's great. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, I'm very, very fortunate. He's, he's a great writer himself. He wrote a rock and roll novel called Perfectly Broken that came out a few years ago. And he's a songwriter and he's a great editor. So he reads all my work. And gives me great advice, and he's also a musician, so whenever he helps me get all the music stuff right, and he's been in the recording studio many, many, many times. So, so. back to this book, what is the promotion? What are you doing to make people aware of it, other than this podcast? Well, your show, this is it, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you know, these days with what's going on in the world, as we know, you never know when you're going to get canceled, but right. um, I think I'm going to be on CBS Sunday morning. Really? Yep. That'll be great. How did that come together? Um... They just said, Holly, come on our show. Well, that's not the way it works. Someone had to either pitch him or had a previous well, relationship. Well, Jonathan Karp, my wonderful editor at Simon & Schuster, and Priscilla Payton, my wonderful editor at Simon & Schuster, I guess they said, hey, you know, check out this book. And, so that's oh, great. But I will tell you a really cool thing, because I was actually on CBS Sunday Morning 12 years ago for my Gene Autry book, and the guy who produced that segment was my producer on this new segment. And it turns out I didn't realize that that was his first ever big segment that he produced. So we just reunited in Brooklyn last Friday for this Janice So they Joplin. already shot it. Yeah, I did it last so, Friday. Okay, so. did you get a huge bump being on uh, CBS Sunday Morning with the Gene Autry well, book? It ha oh, yes. I actually, and you know, I was on Oxford University Press, for not exactly a powerhouse right. in the promotion. I mean, a great, great publisher. 
but you know, not the super, you know, big bucks, you know, get get the story out there. But yeah, I actually I think I made it into the Amazon top ten for a couple wow. of, for a couple of days, you know. Okay. It was couple either of, that or quest- I got a good couple review, of questions but. before we come to the end of the feeling we've oh, known. Can we talk for two more we days? We could, but you know, <laughs> the um the editor, to what degree did they either steer you or change your writing? Oh, my editor was amazing. I've had some great editors before, but this woman gets down in the weeds. I mean, she does the old school pencil writing comments on the manuscript pages, which actually I'm kind of old school like that too. So we did like deep, deep dives into the, really? you know, yeah. And she, I think really helped me elevate my prose. Totally. She, I, I trusted her implicitly and she was actually the perfect kind of reader because usually my editors are music people and that's their main thing. Of course, she knew Janis Joplin, but she didn't. She wasn't a music geek like me, so she was able to have this perspective. I think that was really important for the book, so I didn't go into the weeds too much, or you know, usually I tend to write way too much. Right. So she helped me uh, figure out where to trim and part that only geeks like me would care about. You know. So uh, the book is coming out. You're going to be on CBS Sunday Morning. It's a major publisher. There are certain events in the world, not always planned, that kickstart another thing. Journey would not be touring the world the way it is today if it hadn't been for the last Sopranos uh, episode. You having done this book, do you believe it will kickstart certain things in Janis Joplin's legacy? I hope so because she deserves to be recognized as the important artist that she was and as a college professor, when I do happen to turn my kids on, play, you know, ball and chain at Monterey Pop for them on YouTube or something, I mean, they are blown away by the power and the authenticity. Authenticity, of ta- for sure. Yeah, her talent is so palpable. And I think people today need that realness that Janice was about realness. And the way she was able to touch these deep emotions that people are afraid to let out, you know, she would let out her fear. She would let out her uh, disappointments for everyone to see. And I think with this world we're living in of lies and facades, I mean, Janice was a truth teller. And I think we need people like her as role models. Listen, that's perfect. We need to end it there because artists used to be beacons and Janice Joplin still is. You bringing her back to light. Holly, thanks so much for doing the podcast. I can't believe you had me on. I'm so happy. Thank you. Okay, great. Till next time, it's Bob Left Set. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 